Just about everyone is afraid of something. Failure, snakes, the dark. But what separates a fear from a phobia? Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, the facts about phobias. My name is Thomas Fowler. I am afraid of the dark. Uh, it's a symbolism of loneliness and being by yourself. So that's why I'm afraid of the dark. I was always left alone when I was a kid, and the dark scares me to this day. I sleep with a nightlight. My name is Drew Amen. I'm most afraid of spiders, I would say, like especially like the hairy ones, you know, like tarantulas. They have all that, that stuff on them, like little hairs. So I was sleeping on the floor in my room, and I woke up once, and there was a spider on my chest, and I just wigged out. Oh, I just kind of screamed like a girl. That was the end of that. I started sleeping up on my bed. The National Institute of Mental Health says 8.7% of Americans suffer from phobias. Joining me on the phone now is Dr. Robert Reiner. He's the executive director of Behavioral Associates in Manhattan. He's also a faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry of New York University Medical Center. Dr. Reiner, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's nice to be here. What's the difference between a fear and a phobia? The difference between a fear and a phobia is the extent that it disrupts your life. Um, I would say something is a phobia when it's extremely disruptive and extremely irrational. Uh, very often, uh, people just can't seem to make heads or tails of it. They just don't get it. Whereas a fear is something that, you know, most people can kind of understand, like a fear of heights, for example. I would think that with a fear, you're still able to do something with a phobia. You're not going to do it no matter what. Well, actually, that's not 100% true because many phobic people, for example, fear of flying. They'll, they're called the white-knuckle flyers. They'll still fly, but uh, in fact, they're confused about why they don't get better because very often people with phobias are told, you just do it over and over again, you will get better. Uh, that's a myth. I want to talk to you more about how you go about getting over a phobia, but first of all, what are the most common phobias out there? You mentioned the fear of flying. Very often I hear fear of death, according to the data. Of course, fear of flying and public speaking phobia. It really runs the gamut, though. People are afraid of everything from snakes to heights to bunny rabbits. Yeah, I mean, we've had the strangest phobias from people who can't make a left turn in a car. Uh, We treated somebody who, if somebody uh, did this with their nose, uh, kind of a snort, a person has a panic attack to the point where if somebody did it, if a cab driver did it, no matter where he was, he'd have to get out of the taxi cab. That, that meant the LIE at 2 o'clock in the morning. We have people who are phobic of particular words. I mean, we had a guy once who would throw up if he heard the word chairperson. So there's no rhyme or reason to this stuff. And people know, by the way, that they are being irrational. They just can't help it. Let me understand this for a moment. You mentioned someone who was afraid of making a left turn. Where would that come from? Nobody knows. And you know what? It doesn't really matter. I've only seen one case in my career where I was sure... I knew why the phobia developed, and that still had nothing to do with the the cure or the treatment. What case was that? Uh, This was a person who, when she was six years old, her 16-year-old brother talked her and her then nine-year-old sister into getting into one of these large, you know, steamer trunks, you uh, these big black trunks when you go to sleepaway camp, you take. Well, she got in them, they both got in with pillows and blankets, and he locked it and left the house, and that was 11 a.m. at 6 p.m., a mom came home. He still hadn't come home. They were in there screaming. Uh, I met this woman when she was in her mid-30s, and she 
not surprisingly, had a fear of being closed in. It's interesting that you say it's difficult to pinpoint how a phobia arises. I'm sure a lot of people want to go back to their childhood and take the Freudian approach most times. I actually believe this for a while, that if you understand, if you gain insight into a problem, the problem will go away. But, you know, if you really think about that, it doesn't make any sense. I can walk off a curb the wrong way and break my ankle. I may know why I did it, but I still better get a good orthopod to set it properly. So then how do you go about treating a phobia? It's very simple, actually. Um... The key here is to get someone extremely relaxed. When you're in that state, it's physiologically impossible to produce anxiety. Now, you may think anxious thoughts, but you cannot feel anxiety. It's the strangest thing. What about kids versus adults? Are kids more or less likely than adults to have a phobia? Less likely only because there are two things that by nature or definition get worse over time. Phobias and addictions. They are both progressive. The reason for that is that most people who are phobic, they behave protectively. In other words, they do whatever they can to get around their phobic situation. Once you behave protectively, as I said earlier, the phobia gets worse. So with kids, it hasn't really had time to develop yet. Can phobias go away on their own? Not really. I've never seen it just disappear. So you have to work on it? You really do. At a muscle skeletal level, you've got to act relaxed. Dr. Robert Reiner, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Dr. Robert Reiner is the Executive Director of Behavioral Associates in Manhattan. My name is Mike Ignato. Most afraid of, I'd say, uh, my future. Kind of like an impending chance of doom. Like you sit there and it's not like you're petrified, but you just, you almost feel depressed because it seems slightly more inescapable than a lot of other things. My name is Lauren Nowakowski. I just hate centipedes so much. They're so slimy and gross. <laughs> when I was younger, out in like I was playing outside, and there was I picked up a rock, and there was lots of centipedes under it. I just saw all of their legs, and I just got grossed out because there's so many legs and centipedes. For many people, just the idea of going to the dentist is enough to make them hyperventilate. Dental phobia is perhaps the most threatening phobia to a person's health because they often avoid the dentist at all costs and allow their teeth to rot. Dr. Lewis Siegelman works with people who are deathly afraid of dentists. I talked with him at his Midtown Manhattan office. He was on the phone with the patient when I arrived. Well, the, you know, the best thing that I can tell you is that uh, you know, if you come in, I'll be able to, I'll be able to fix things for you. And uh, you know, If you don't come in, then I just, there's, there's nothing I can do to help you. Okay. All righty, so give us a call back. Okay. Okay, bye. Many people don't like going to the dentist, but you deal with people who are extremely, extremely afraid. That's correct. Um, not liking going uh, to the dentist is, is really a different entity. For my patients, they have some traumatic history, and that has resulted in a, in a memory that's imprinted in a part of the brain that deals with the fight-or-flight response. And that is a very different wiring than our ordinary likes and dislikes. And that wiring in particular is geared to helping people in, in life-threatening um, situations. So you don't even have to think about something, you just react. And that saves the individual. So it's the fight-or-flight response. And if you read through my charts, people will use the verbiage of fight-or-flight. And they'll say, you know, when I'm at the dentist, my hands go out. My hands go up. Um, I grab the dentist's hands. I, I 
punched the dentist, I kicked the dentist, I bit the dentist. If the window was open behind him, he would have flown out of the window. And these are all things that I've heard from patients. And they have no control over this. They'll just do it. That is exactly right, and that's a very, very key thing, because when you have a reflex, you have no control over this. And people will feel embarrassed by this. There'll be, there's also a tremendous amount of shame that goes along with this. And it's very, very important for the person to realize that this is not something that they have control over. They feel like they, they feel so diminished by the fact that they just can't bring themselves to get this done. And they could be somebody who's in a, a high-profile business. They could be somebody who deals with the public. They may be totally meticulous in every other aspect of their lives, and yet they can't bring themselves to get their teeth fixed. I understand that people with dental phobia also try to take care of their own teeth. They'll pull their own teeth. They'll try to fill their own teeth. They, they absolutely do, and I've had many patients who glue their teeth in um, and uh, they carve their own teeth out of wood. I've had patients carve their own teeth out of wax, and they'll do anything to avoid going to the dentist, and that's because it stimulates a, a panic attack. Where does this fear come from, do you think? It comes from this, um, this wiring mechanism that we all have. It's the fight-or-flight response, and there's a part of the brain that, that mediates this. But once you have a memory that's imprinted in that part of the brain, it's virtually a lifelong memory, although it can be moderated to some degree. And does it come from a childhood experience? Most often it does come from a childhood experience, but it doesn't always come from a childhood experience. Uh, it comes from a traumatic experience over which the person has no control. Uh, often that's abuse. It could also be a, a wartime situation. I've had people who um, were wounded on the beach in D-Day. They were wounded in Vietnam. They were a prisoner of war by the Germans, the North Koreans, the Viet Cong. And these traumatic episodes leave a imprint, a, a lifelong memory. How do you approach patients with dental phobia? How do you deal with them? Some of the most important things are understanding who these people are. And when you, when you speak to them and you let them know that you really understand, that's a very, very important thing for them. What has been your most difficult case through the years? Probably the most difficult patients are those who have uh, real schizophrenia. Are most phobic patients sedated or not? It depends on their on their needs. I usually because trauma is a is a common is so common for my patients. It's it's virtually universal. I really need to be able to control the situation that they're treated in, and sedation, intravenous sedation, can can provide that. I would think that dental phobia could also be rooted in a fear of needles or a fear of choking. Absolutely true. Probably the, the number three reason why people come in is uh, a gag reflex, a very, very sensitive gag reflex. And um, that uh, relates to fear of choking. It also can relate to uh, claustrophobic issues. Um, so those are, that's big. This is a serious situation for these people, as you say. Some people can go for years without going to the dentist. Wow. Yeah, they can go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 50 years. Have you been kicked and punched a lot throughout your career? Um, I could say that I, that I never have. That, um, I don't believe in, in any force of any kind on my, on my patients, and I don't um, put my patients in that situation. If a patient should start to act up, do you just say, let's try again or let's make another appointment? I usually try to start from a different point. In other words, I wouldn't put a patient in a, a new patient in a situation where I know they have this traumatic history and I'm going to expose them to the dental environment. 
So that's why I usually will err on the side of wanting to use the IV sedation. I'll, I'll really encourage it. Just the sound of a drill alone, I'm sure, is enough to put fear into people who are afraid to come to see you. Absolutely. It's, the, it's a fight-or-flight response, and anything that triggers that light switch, so somebody will have that, um, that uh, physiologic mechanism of fear, it's, it's a reflex, and it's a very, very short circuit. It's designed to have an instant response, and the, and the response that people will have is to run for their life, and that's why they, uh, they act the way they do. And uh, people will say, tell me that they, um, they got, up, got up off the gurney and they ran for a medical procedure, or they, um, or they remember when they were a kid running out of the room and hiding under a desk and they remember the feet going back and forth or they remember running outside and somebody coming after them. So it's, it's literally this fight or flight response and the sound of the drill or the sight or even a smell or even a presence can, um, can make somebody want to run for their life. I've had patients tell me that dentists use their belly um, to kind of fix them in the, in the chair. And I've had patients tell me that, uh, you know, please don't stand over me, that um, somebody standing over them like that um, signifies to them immediate pain. And please don't, you know, please don't stand over them, which is difficult for dentists not to do. I'm sure, as you are aware, that we folks in radio would want to use the sound of a drill in a piece like this. Yeah, I, un- unfortunately, I think that that would be, for, for these patients, it would very likely make them turn off the radio. And so I, I, don't, want to, uh, I don't want to do that to your program. What's your advice to someone who is so afraid of the dentist that they've never been in a number of years to take that first step? How do they pick up the phone and make that appointment? That first step is, is hugely difficult for patients. But one of the things that I like to do is I like to speak to each new patient on the phone and uh, before they come in, and I tell them things that make, them, make it easier for them to come in. And um, I usually try to establish that rapport on the phone before that first meeting. And, um, and, you know, once they know that I understand them, that makes it a lot easier for them. I think that there's a growing availability and a growing um, concern among dentists that this is an underserved patient population. And so I think that help is, is more and more available. Dr. Siegelman, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much, George. Dr. Louis Siegelman is a New York City dentist. He's devoted more than 20 years to patients with dental phobia. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're talking about phobias. My name is Jake Noon. Just like a little nervous and self-conscious. Public speaking. (laughs) Getting up in front of the crowd and just worrying about what they think about you. From coming to college, I've gotten over it mostly, but it's still a little bit there. Tis the season for parties, and if you've been invited to one, you're probably either psyched about it or sick over it. Many people have a fear of mingling. What if I say the wrong thing? Or what if the conversation falls flat? If you're one of those people who suffer from mingle phobia, well, help has arrived. Joining me in the studio this morning is Jean Martinet. She's a master mingler and the author of The Art of Mingling, Proven Techniques for Mastering Any Room. Jean, what a relief to have you here this morning. <laughs> Thank you, George. I hope I can help. I must admit that I am somewhat of a mingle-phobe myself. Parties, Jean, are supposed to be fun. Why are some of us so afraid of them? Well, it's so interesting, but 90%, about 90% of people I talk to have mingle-phobia, which is one, was one of the reasons I finally decided to write this book. All phobias are based, I think, on the on our fears of 
not being liked. No, of course, there is an easy way out, and yes. that is to decline the invitation. Yeah, no, that's, that's not acceptable because um, you never know when – you know, I've had 10-minute conversations with people that have changed my life. I mean, you just – you don't know who you're going to meet at a party. You don't know who who knows somebody who then you can meet. And even more than ever now with um, everyone being so addicted to their internet and their um, Blackberries, we need to always accept the opportunity to meet people face-to-face. I have good friends now who text me. They never pick up the phone anymore. I know. People – that is really an epidemic. It really is in this country. So – or all over. But um, – so – Never try not to turn down invitations to parties because you're afraid. I mean, you know, if you really don't feel well physically or, you know, once in a while you can get it, you know, get out a party free card. But most of the time you should really go. Okay. So what's the first step, though, to conquering that fear of mingling? Well, I give I offer survival fantasies in the book, and they, that sounds really silly, but um, there are these psychological tricks you can do if you're really terrified. And one of my favorite ones is called I call it the buddy system. And it's not about having a real buddy because if you have one, then you're probably not as afraid. But it's about pretending that your best friend or your wife or someone that loves you is right over your right shoulder when you enter the party. And if you just picture that, you know, and what, what would they say when you're meeting these people? And of course, they're on your side. So they're going to be saying things in your ear like, you know, go for it. Or isn't that guy a jerk or whatever? And um, of course, you don't want to actually speak to your imaginary friend. <laughs> but, you know, that can help you. And the other thing is, there's another law of, the, of mingling, which is also just a law of life, which is to remember that no one is thinking about you. Everyone is only thinking about themselves. And so when you walk into a room and you're terrified, take a moment. Just stand there. Look around the room. Take a deep breath. There's no need for you to immediately charge into these people and start speaking. No one is going to be looking at you saying, what is that person doing standing all alone? They're, they're not. They're all totally self-obsessed. You recommend something called the invisible man yes. approach. The invisible man approach is when you enter the party and you just, you're just not there. You just pretend as though you're 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 a ghost, you know, like the like in the in the movie, and no one can see you, but you can see them, and just walk around and take a look at the food and at people and what they're wearing, and just be, you know, and if you can really pretend that you're invisible for a little while, only for five or ten minutes, because you don't want to stay invisible, that's then then you'd be a party ghost, and that's not good, but you you begin to get a sense that really it's everything is okay, and you just have it's a powerful thing. One thing that a lot of us do is we go to parties with friends or. A spouse or a partner, and we stay with them the entire night. We never make the break. That's not a good thing. No, that's not a good thing. I have a section in The Art of Mingling on how to really uh, mingle at a party when you're, when you're in a couple, and you should definitely split up just for this, just for this, the time of the party. Um, because you, even when you're traveling, when traveling in another country, it's the same thing. If you're traveling alone, you meet amazing people. Uh, but if you stay with the person, you know, you can, you can go through the whole country and never really talk to anyone, have any meaningful conversations. So yes, definitely split up. You can come back together once in a while to regroup, or if you suddenly find yourself alone, having a, another person at the party is very helpful if you do it the right way, because you can help each other. You can, can, um, point out where there might be, you know, a, a drunk at the party that they want to stay away from or where there might be somebody really interesting that they know that their partner might want to speak to. So you can really help each other, but you should definitely mingle separately. Okay, so let's go to the party, Jean, hypothetically okay. speaking. Okay. Here we are at a party, and I just walked into the room, and here are all of these people already in conversation. Right. What do I do? 
There are several basic opening approaches that you can use. And my favorite one for when you really don't know anyone is something I call the honest approach. Walk up to a group of people and say, hi, I'm Jean Martinet, and I just don't know a single soul here. And it's amazing what happens when you do that, if you do it, you know, with a sincere attitude. People because you've given over your power to them and you've basically asked them to help you in a certain sense, they usually will not only be happy to speak with you, but they'll usually also introduce you to other people at the party. If that doesn't suit your style, there's another um, entrance technique I use sometimes called the flattery entree. And that uh, technique is if you can see someone who has... um, earrings or glasses that are spectacularly wonderful, you know, you can go up and you say, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt you all, but I just have never seen any glasses that fabulous. Where did you get those? And, you know, everybody responds to flattery, especially if it's based on something real like their glasses, and um, you, you will get in that way. Those are my two favorite ones. You have a number of great opening lines in your book. Can you share some of them with us? I always find it's better to make an observation as an opening line rather than ask a question because it's less confrontational. So you go up to someone and you say, can you believe how many people are in this room? Or, you know, make an observation about, I've never seen a hat that extreme. Or is this smoked salmon the best smoked salmon you've ever had? And you know, you make an observation about a, the party, which is the, the common denominator that you all have there, and usually that starts a conversation. If you want to use a more playful line, you can use something like, Hi, I'm practicing my mingling tonight. Can I practice on you? You know, and then um, there are more risky lines um, that are not recommended for the novice. <laughs> Such as? Such as, Hi, I'm not going to tell you who, but someone told me that I had to speak with you because you were the smartest person in the room. I like that one. It's <laughs> playful, too. It's playful, too. But, you know, it's, it's risky because you have, you're telling an outright lie. But you say that you should not be afraid to tell white lies. That's true. When you mingle. Lying is basically used in mingling to protect people's feelings as well as having you be able to get where you want. So, for example, all of my escape techniques uh, are based on white lies because you simply cannot say to someone... I am really tired of talking to you, and so now I'm going to go to talk to somebody else. (laughs) And we've all been cornered by that person that we find a bore or that person who simply is just obnoxious and we need to get out. That's right, which is why I have 12 or so escape techniques. It's a whole chapter in my book because it really helps in being able to be fluid at the party, to be able to move around. Um, And they range from the very simple what I call the buffet bye-bye and other handy excuses, which is when you say I have to go get something to eat or drink. The trick with that one is that a real barnacle, you know, a real a person who's really attached themselves to you will follow you almost anywhere if they are attached to you. So um, if you're going to use that excuse, my favorite one is the something, it's called the telephone line. And that's where you pretend that your cell phone is buzzing and vibrating and you say, oh, my God, I've got to go get I've got to take this. And you walk away because the telephone is the one place people can't follow you because the privacy is implied. The more extreme example that you give to get away is the human sacrifice. (laughs) The human sacrifice is everyone's favorite because it has such a nasty sounding name. But it's actually quite a common technique.
you're speaking to the to Bob the boar, and um, you see somebody else you know out of the corner of your eye walking by. You get that person, you bring them into the conversation, you introduce them to Bob the boar, and as soon as they are introducing each other, like there's about a five, ten second period when you can just simply say excuse me and walk away because of the one of the mingling rules, which is change equals movement, movement equals change. And so when someone else enters the group, there's this loosening of the group. And uh, it's very easy to move in and out during that period. How do you know when you're the bore, when someone wants to get away from you? Isn't that horrible? It is. I hope you never know that. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're with a good mingler, um, in a perfect world, if everyone really was good at the art of mingling, no one would ever be able to tell that they were the bore. But also to remember that, you know, one person's bore is another person's treasure. And, you know, even if, yes, if someone's eyes are darting all over the room, you know, while you're trying to talk to them, that's usually not a very good sign. I would think you also would want to get out first before that person leaves you. Yes, that is true. It is better to escape from someone before they escape from you. That's one of the five mingling laws of survival. When I'm at a party and mm-hmm. I make contact and I'm starting conversation, what do I do to keep that conversation up? Because sometimes you're so afraid that there will be silence, that awkward period where just the conversation stops and you can't think of anything else to say. Right. Well... You know, it's also important to not just ask questions. People, A lot of people say, well, that's easy. You just keep asking the other person questions. And you can use that technique. But sometimes when you ask people questions, they will only answer in monosyllables. Then you know, it doesn't get you anywhere. So you, you also have to give back when you're speaking. You can't just ask questions. You also recommend using the alphabet. Start yes. <laughs> with A and work your way to Z. Think of ideas. Think of topics. That's true. I do include, there's a memory trick that I include in the book for people who really get stumped. One of my favorite things for awkward pauses is something I call the quotation device. And that is to have lines from famous movies or favorite television shows. Seinfeld, especially in any urban area, those lines are immediately bond you with the other person. You also recommend game playing at parties, and I'm not talking about Monopoly. No. Although there's not anything wrong with that. <laughs> How's that for a Seinfeld reference? Yeah, <laughs> not anything wrong with that. Um, yes, game playing, um, I discovered this particular trick years ago when I was in, I think, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and I was at a party full of strangers, and I had this particular jacket on that was a color that was sort of halfway between orange and red. And I had noticed in the past that every time I was with a woman, she would think it was, she said it was orange, and men would always call it red. And I always thought that interesting. So I I used this jacket, and I would go up to people at the party, and I said, do you think this jacket is orange or red? And I started taking a survey, and that became my game-playing jacket. People love doing that. And then it leads to a discussion of the differences in the sexes. And once you're there, then you're, you've really got the conversation going. You can ask someone, where are you from? Or you can say, name three things about where you're from and let me guess. Right, exactly. Or you can say, you know, I can t- let me guess by your accent or by your regional accent where you're from. My only really hard and fast rule for um, the art of mingling is that it should always be enjoyable. And your number one goal has to be having fun. All the other goals, getting a job, you know, finding a boyfriend, improving your life in some way, should always be secondary to your main goal of having a good time. It's really the only way to succeed in the art of mingling because you can't really fake it. I mean, some people can sort of fake it. Good salesmen. How long should you stay with one person or a group of people at a party before you move on? 
10 to 15 minutes is really, 10 to 20 minutes, I don't know, somewhere in there is really um, no longer than 20 minutes. 20 minutes is way, you know, is really the outside because you want to keep circulating. And at a party, that's actually a long time. Is there a quick way to determine whether someone's even worth your time, that that person is someone you want to talk to before making the approach? Can you look at the way they're standing? Or? Yes, you can. That, you know, um, body language is a good way. My my father actually, believe it or not, one of the few things my dear father taught me, he, he one times told me that when he, he goes to a party, he just looks for someone who's not wearing a suit. My father's a musician. And um, he, he just would find the person in the room who wasn't wearing a suit and tie, and he'd go talk to them, knowing that he would have more in common with them. You can use the people. You can certainly judge a book by their cover and uh, look at how they're dressed, how they're standing. There's also something I call the sophistication test. That's to go up to someone and say, so how did you get here? And when you say that, it's, it's a question that can be answered on several different levels. And so they can say, well, I came here by taxi. And then, you know, well, you can have a perfectly safe, if not maybe exciting conversation with that person. But they can also say, well, you know, my father caught my mother on a good night. <laughs> and then, you know, you're talking to another kind of person. Well, Jean Martinet, thank you so much for all of these mingling tips. You've just helped me and I'm sure many other people get through this holiday season. My pleasure. Have fun. The book is The Art of Mingling, Proven Techniques for Mastering Any Room. It's out now from St. Martin's Griffin. My name is Arshani Perez. I'm afraid of dying in a bad way, like, you know, any gruesome way. Pain, it just, uh, when you feel it, I get, like, the anxiety. It's just not good. I don't, I'd rather die peacefully. Especially when it comes to like drowning or someone uh, suffocating me. I just have a lot of nightmares with those things. So I guess it always is in my mind. My name is Tony Pena. I was like 13. And I had a dream of a Mack truck chasing me all over the place. Just the fear of going crunch in places I'm not supposed to go crunch. I have a little Corolla. So if one of those roll over me, it will do serious damage. If you want to check out a complete list of phobias from A to Z, go to phobialist.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find the Cityscape archives and learn how to podcast the show at wfuv.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.